Are you ready to take the next step in your multifamily investing career? The time has never been better than now. Think Multifamily's Deal Analysis Workshop is a comprehensive live training course that will help increase your skills, knowledge, confidence as an investor before you invest. This workshop is a unique experience that provides hands-on instruction and guidance directly from Mark Kinney, who has completed over 100 multifamily syndications valued at over $1 billion. This course goes beyond theory as you will be presented with real case studies and practice scenarios to work out in class. By the end of the training, you will have significantly improved your ability to evaluate deals quickly, make informed decisions, and take your investing skills to the next level with confidence. For more information and to register for Think Multifamily's Deal Analysis Workshop, go to thinkmultifamily.com forward slash D-A-W, use code Whitney100 to save $100. The Deal Analysis Workshop is designed for both beginner and experienced investors. Whether you are looking for a foundational understanding of how to analyze multifamily investments or looking for fresh insight on how to pivot your analysis method, for this current market cycle, this is a workshop you have been looking for. Register today at thinkmultifamily.com forward slash DAW. Use code Whitney100 to save $100. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. Our guest is Ken Holman. Thanks for being on the show, Ken. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. You and I were discussing about how you're incorporating 1031 and, and self-directed IRAs and regular investors in the same projects. And, and we thought that, you know, that'd be a great topic, great item for us to dive into a little bit and how you're able to do that. And so I'd love for you to talk about that and us dive in. I think most syndicators these days are, they go out and they find a group of investors that you know, have some equity capital that they want to invest in a project. And that's the approach that they take. And and we get a lot of those kind of investors. At this stage of my career, I like to work with bigger investors, obviously, as opposed to smaller investors. But I have found that it's possible to incorporate 1031 tax deferred exchange investors with self-directed retirement account investors and regular investors. And that's not an easy process to do. So I thought it might be fun for your listeners to just hear an explanation of how we go about that process. And maybe there are others that want to incorporate that into their business model. But so today, most real estate projects are done through the formation of a limited liability company, which is the crux of the legal organization that you set up to run the project. And Most of these are single asset entities. So we form an LLC. And as most people know, an LLC is a security. And so you get into all of the real estate, you get into all of the SEC requirements relative to registration or non-registration or being exempt from registration. And so we all deal with uh, Reg D. And one of the rules, either 506B or 506C. And 506C is the one that seems to most people gravitate to because it doesn't restrict your ability to advertise, but you just have to deal with accredited investors. Well, you can not only include in that LLC regular real estate investors, 
But most people don't realize that you can take an IRA or a 401k. And if you have turned it into a self-directed IRA or 401k, and there are several companies out there that can assist investors to do that, but you can then take that IRA or a 401k or any other type of basic retirement account, and they can invest directly in real estate. Most stockbrokers don't tell you about this. Most financial planners don't tell you about this because they don't want to deal with you taking some of your assets or some of your capital and moving it in and investing it directly in real estate. So we work with a lot of clients in accommodating that. I had one client out of Tucson, Arizona, been with me a long time now. He called me one day and said, Ken, I heard you're doing a, you're building a family dollar store in Colorado. And he says, I'm sick of being in the stock market. I've got $2 million in my 401k and help me figure out how to get that money into your real estate deals. Somebody says that you're jumping, right? I mean, you're, you're ready to help. Yeah, totally. So we did that and uh, he's now invested in three projects with me. Uh, got about a million and a half dollars invested in various things that we're doing. But we've been able to assist a lot of clients in how to do self-directed IRAs and 401ks. And I have my favorite companies. I, I won't advertise them here, but if somebody wants to call, they're welcome to do that. But the interesting side of all this is the 1031 tax deferred exchange investor. They cannot invest in the LLC because it has to be a like kind exchange, real estate for real estate. You can't exchange a real estate project for an interest in an LLC. So we find that especially we can take the land and have LLCs acquire the land because it's real estate. And then they acquire the land and we form what's called a tenant in common agreement, a TIC. And that word has been used for good and bad. Some of the TICs in past years have not been good with investors, but it's generally because the sponsor that's doing the TIC has no vested interest in the project. In our situation, we put our own capital in we sign on the notes, we guarantee the loan. So we really have a vested interest to see that the project is done. But we then can take those 1031 investors and marry that with the LLC. And those two become co-owners of the project. And the tenant and common agreement is what controls as opposed to normally an LLC. And by doing that, we found that we've been able to get all those interests together in the same thing in the same project and have it be successful. So just to reiterate there, like a 1031 investor can't invest in a regular syndication because they're buying a share of an entity. They're not actually buying real estate. Is that correct? That's exactly right. They can't buy an interest in an LLC just because it's not considered a like kind exchange. And the government requires for a 1031 exchange it has to be like kind, meaning real estate for real estate. It doesn't have to be an apartment for an apartment or an office building for an office building. It can be any type of real estate for any other type of real estate. And so you can do a like kind exchange and it, the exchange has to be for equal or greater value than the asset that you're replacing. So now instead of doing the LLC, you're going to do a tenant in common and that's a way around or so to somebody can 1031 in. Yeah, that's the way you marry the two is the tenant in common becomes the controlling entity 
and the LLC and the 1031 investors are co-owners of that. And so that's a way that you can incorporate all that money, all that investment capital into the same project and get it to work. A couple little nuances for 1031 investors that they have to be aware of when you're doing a deal like that. Those guys particularly have a different ownership interest in the asset that they're buying than they do in the project that you're building. For instance, you may buy a piece of land for a million or $2 million. And if somebody's putting in 200000 in a $2 million project, they'll own 10% of the land. But maybe the project that you're building is a $20 million project. So their $200,000 investment generally is 10% ownership in the project. So you have to make sure that all the documentation that you do states that they have a certain percentage ownership in the land, and that translates into a different ownership interest when they're a part of a larger project. And so I couldn't stress enough how important it is to get good legal advice on how to do all of this. It's uh, You don't want to go out and do this without getting good representation and making sure that you have people that understand not only the security side of the business, but the real estate side of the business. And so you could be investing your 200000 and only getting a portion of the land itself. And then this building's built, maybe it's sold later on down the road, but you only get a portion of the value of the land. Yeah. So you may own uh, 10% of the value of the land, but say you're building a $20 million project and you've got 25% of that that you're raising as equity capital. So you've got basically a $5 million raise. So their $200,000 ownership interest represents 200000 of a $5 million transaction. So they have a lot smaller ownership interest in the actual project. And we try to make sure that so everybody is treated equally that the, the tenant in common or the 1031 investors, their requirements mirror what we've done with the LLC in terms of the operating agreement. So everybody is getting treated equally. So I think that may be kind of a complicated kind of transaction. And some of your newer guys may may not be ready to do a deal like that. But when you're talking about raising five to $10 million on a transaction to do a project anywhere from 20 to $40 million, somewhere in that range, it really makes it possible to incorporate all of those different types of entities and investors and raise a lot more equity capital than you could otherwise if you're dealing with just one investor type. Our guest is Brandon Bruckman. Thanks for being on the show, Brandon. Uh, Thanks, Whitney, for having me. It's good to be here. During the show, we're going to explore options for real estate investors in a 1031 exchange, how planning is critical for investors, and how syndicators can help attract 1031 exchange capital. I know this is a topic that comes up often. The 1031 exchange, I get questions from investors often, almost weekly. Is this possible? Can I do this? How do I initiate a 1031? Or just what is that? You know, is that something I could benefit from? And Brandon's going to help us to better understand that today. And just so you know, even thinking about as an operator, being able to go out and find sellers who who want to do a 1031 and that being able to bring a lot of capital to your deal. If you're syndicating deals, you are in the 
capital raising business. It's such a big part of our business in finding those investors and networking, communicating with them. And this is a great option to find another group of investors who can partner with you. But there's specific ways that that has to be done legally. And so they can get those tax benefits. And and so we're all protected and all those things. But Brandon, welcome to the show. Grateful to have you on. Uh, This is a topic that I know the listeners are, you know, always wonder about and want to ensure just that they understand it so they know they're doing it correctly. And, you know, and how we even get started. So give us a little bit about your background, about why you're the expert, you know, in 1031 exchanges. And let's dive into how a syndicator can use this, this model. Yeah. So in terms of background, a bit about me and the firm. So our firm is called Insight Real Estate Partners. And we've been off and doing this now for about two and a half years. We spent three years prior to that just researching it. Our background really comes from the investing side of the world. Probably myself, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I shunned real estate. As silly as that sounds, I spent six years working at a rather large hedge fund. And our focus was on public markets and on on things that are happening in the world from a macro perspective. And I found that fascinating. And so I I sort of pushed real estate aside. But fortunately for me, um, you know, I ran into my partner and his family has a deep background in real estate. And I've always had sort of this problem where operating real estate and what do we do when we're, frankly, we're getting a little bit older. In the case of his family, and there are some health problems there as well. How do we think about stopping to operate, stop the operation of this real estate without paying that tax bill. Because the tax bill came to their family as quite a bit of surprise. And for some perspective, the tax bill we're sort of talking about is not only capital gains. I think that's the first thing that pops into people's heads. Like, oh man, I got a cap gains bill here. But you also have depreciation recapture and any state tax as well is in that equation. So in the particular example of my partner and his family, they were looking at a 40 plus percent tax bill that they weren't expecting. So it's it's sort of mind-boggling to think about those numbers. And I think it leads investors to decisions they don't want to make. Either one, they don't sell and they're going to sit on this property till they die and get a step up in basis for their heirs. That's one way. Swap till you drop is sort of the terminology that you use, but you're always managing property. So the other way is I think investors make some maybe poor purchase decisions all in the effort to avoid that tax. So we like to take sort of a time out and have investors really start to think about what is it that I want to do? When do I want to do this? Planning is so critical before we even get into the exchange process. Planning. You said it right there. Planning is so critical. Uh, You know, that we're asking about how to do a 1031 exchange and if it fits for me, like years before we actually need it, right? And meeting people just like yourself. So let's talk about the operator a little bit and how they can even... I guess opening our minds a little bit as an operator, just that this is something we should be focusing on uh, and finding sellers, finding people who are needing a 1031, needing to do a 1031 or could benefit from that. Help us with that a little bit. You know, as the operator, it can seem a little overwhelming to think about adding something like that or trying to learn this process and finding these people. How should we do that? How do we even find those people? Yeah, I'll I'll take you through a little bit of background, kind of how we we got starting to think about, about syndication as an option. So we sort of rolled through this as a firm and thinking about an instrument called a Delaware Statutory Trust. And that's a mouthful. And I'll refer to it as DST as we go. That's a more typical option for investors that are looking to get passive and to get out. And that is by the SEC of financial security. So it fits well into our business. We're like, okay, this makes sense. As we started to work our way through that market, those products are designed for one type of investor in mind. 
designed for a very conservative type of investor. So immediately we had people coming to our door that were a little bit more, let's say, sophisticated or looking for a little bit different economics or a different scenario. And we sort of started talking to syndicators about this a little bit. And frankly, our initial conversations, we got a lot of, hey, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't do that. The more that we dug into it and realized, yes, you can. So the structure that, that we've been helping folks utilize is referred to as tenant in common or tick. So the biggest thing, and I want syndicators to sort of think about the investor for a second. As they're coming out of a 1031 exchange, they have to maintain ownership of that property in the same entity that they're in. That is critical. So you cannot change entities when we're doing the 1031 exchange. I can't go from one LLC to another. I can't go from directly owning it to being a partner in a syndication. Can't do that. I have to be entity to entity. And the DST structure, like I mentioned, allows us to do that. But so does the tenant in a common structure. So I think that presents some different kind of challenges maybe for the syndicator. It's a different setup. You are, in essence, partnering with somebody. So a lot of initial phone calls we'll have with syndicator partners are that investor and syndicator actually getting to know each other. Like, do I want to be in this property with this person? You may have the majority of equity there. You may be in control making the decisions as a syndicator, but you also have someone that you're partnered with on this transaction. So that that's a different element than I think the GPLP structure and the way to think about the way a syndicator could think about running their business is a bit different. But I think the upside as well, though, as we think about as Whitney, we mentioned before the calls, we roll into this election and people that are staying on the fence and thinking about 1031 exchange, it might get a little bit scary for them staring at a policy that says, I'm going to eliminate that. So, I mean, we anticipate as a firm, potentially a lot of 1031 money flowing our way and into this space over the next 6, 8, 12 months. If certain things happen politically, we anticipate that coming here. So it behooves the syndicator to kind of look at that and say, hey, this could be really interesting. On top of that, I think the most interesting relationships that we see here are folks that want to retire as the investor that have been operators for 20 or 30 years. Syndicators and that investor, man, there is a personality fit there that's phenomenal. So in this, while all the financials are great and the economics are great and the capital coming is great, you also may find an awesome partner coming out of these deals. That's some great information right there. I wanted to go back a little bit to the the seller having to maintain ownership of that entity. And that in that entity then is coming into our syndication, really, as that tenant in common. They're kind of this uh, there's an LP, there's GP, and then there's this this tick or tenant in common, you know, out here. And they can have a big role, right? They can have a lot of say in what happens, things like that. And can you speak to just the what the syndicator should be thinking about when we're having that conversation with that seller and determining, I mean, like we're the operator here, right? We're still not going to call you about paint colors, most likely. Uh, you know, you're still passive in this deal. And just how to structure that or or guide that conversation so we're prepared for the future of that relationship. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think the syndicator should walk into that conversation with some very clear expectations of the way that they intend to run that property and how they intend to or not to involve that investor. That's absolutely critical. So we see these... I'll kind of take this to where we see things go bad. Things go bad when myself, my investor, who's my client, and the syndicator get on the call and we don't have clear expectations coming into there what people are going to do. So I think, I think the good thing that we add to the equation is we can sort of play that 
sort of mediator into that, into that transaction. So we'll get to know syndicators and understand how they operate and then present them to investors and say, hey, this is how they kind of work. And then we're sort of playing matchmaker, for lack of better terms, trying to find people that sort of fit that criteria, right? I think most syndicators should take that mindset that they're in charge and they're running the property and you plan on doing what you plan on doing with that property and be very clear and direct about that. If we have a good match there, the investor will understand that and sign up to play in that game. If we don't, they won't. So it's having a clear set of expectations from the syndicator. It's your deal. So from my seat in representing my investor, I want you to come to initial meeting or call and say, here, here's what we do, right? And that will help the investor make a decision about where they want to be. In other cases, and, and again, this will depend on the size of the capital, right? We'll see syndicators make some concessions and work with that potential investor. It's finding a good fit. And if you can find that good fit, I think there's always middle ground that you can find in some circular structure. That makes sense. Great. Another factor I know we have dealt with and other companies as well, it's like, well, there's a big cost to this on our side also, uh, just getting that structure set up. It's many, many thousands more dollars, you know, on our, our side. And so, you know, I know many companies that do what we do just say, nope, we're not, you know, we're just not going to do it. And even their their CPA or their tax person has just said, no, it's too time consuming, right? I mean, there's just too much to it to make it worthwhile. So many companies just say, no, you know, we're just not open to it. While I've seen others say, if somebody's bringing a half a million dollars or a million dollars, you know, through a 1031 exchange, then we'll consider it. Can you speak to that? You know, just the cost side of it. When is it worthwhile? How much should somebody be bringing or or even, you know, just to to make it worthwhile for all the legwork that has to be done? Yeah, I'll spin that a little bit from the investor's point of view first. That's who we're spending the most time with and sort of what we tell people. I think that'll help. So if investors are coming to us with equity sizes less than a million dollars, we usually don't recommend this option. It becomes, however, a bigger part of fit with that investor than it does about the equity. So, I mean, investors can come to us with with $10 worth of equity, and this still may not be a good option for them. They need to understand what this is and how they need to participate. That's what the key point is. So we'll spend time with them. So for example, I'll give, you a, I'll give you a real client example. A client we had who was just turned 50 and wanted to retire. He'd been running property for 25 years, right? He bought his first property when he was 19. So this is what he does. But he was done, right? A little younger than usual it comes to us, but hey, good for him. He is an operator. That is what he does. This made a ton of sense to go the syndication route. He understands it. It's very close to what he knows. It's almost exactly what he knows. Instead, he's allowing someone else to really run and manage that deal. That's a great fit. We'll have other folks, another real client example, that sold a business. There's real estate inside of that business. Totally 1031 exchange eligible. We'll go down that route. They have absolutely no idea how to invest in real estate. This is not a good fit. The business ticket was bigger than our real estate operator. Right. So equity size is a factor here, I think, for us, but it is more about about experience and how they come to that transaction. But to your point, it is definitely it's more cumbersome to go this route, especially if a syndicate array has a business built GPLP. I have a structure I'm running I'm finding deals I'm going to stop and to do something a little bit different is more costly and time consuming to do that. That's an absolutely consideration there. The investors, though, on their side have to be a good personality and experience fit to get inside of this sort of world. 
Can you speak to the operator a little bit and the investor? I think this will help both. But I was just thinking through when I have that conversation with with an investor and he says, you know, Whitney, we're going completely passive. We've had this portfolio. We're selling, you know, we just want out. It's time for me to retire, whatever the reasoning may be. Uh, We don't want to keep managing this, but, you know, we want to do a 1031 exchange. Can you speak to maybe a couple of details that we should know to tell that investor, you know, as an operator, just to educate them a little bit? And it maybe include just the timing of selling that asset personally as that investor compared to when we need to invest in a syndication versus when that syndication closes. Does that matter? Some things like that. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point because that is the trickiest part that we'll go through with investors and syndicators. We'll get to the point where we say, yes, I'm comfortable. Yes, I like this deal. And now it becomes a question of timing and the timing gets a little bit tricky. So let's talk about the 1031 exchange process first. So I think if you're having that exact conversation you mentioned with me with, with an investor as a syndicator, make sure that the investor understands the timeline and they built a team around this as well. CPA is a great person to have in this transaction. Real estate lawyer is a great person to have in this transaction. The investor wants to speak with these people before they even start to think about doing an exchange. Okay, so that's one. Once they want to execute the exchange, they have to work with their title company or another third-party entity called a qualified intermediary. They have to work with these people. They absolutely cannot take constructive receipt of the funds from the sale. They do that and this whole situation is done. That is mistake. That's cardinal sin number one. You cannot take constructive receipt of these assets. So the easiest way is to work with your title company. Most of them have qualified intermediary capabilities and they'll take constructive receipt of those funds. So that's, that's the first step for them. Once that closing hits, they have two big dates to think about. One, they have 45 days from that closing date to identify property, and they have 180 days from the closing date to close. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 